0: Sorry, I know you'd rather listen to the rest of that sketch than what I have to say, but we are beginning a new sermon series this morning on the book of James. I thought of no better way to introduce it than than that. When I was a kid growing up, uh, we spent most major holidays at my grandparents' house in South Arkansas. And my dad's brother and his family would also come, Uh, so there would be four boys and eight girls. Eight girls all spending the week in a three-bedroom house with one bathroom. Okay, it was great. Now, whenever it was time for us to gather around and eat dinner, uh, even though my grandmother had a nice big dining room table, there were too many of us to all fit around her table. So, where did I have to sit? At the kids' table, right between my two sisters and with my three girl cousins. Okay, it was awful. Right? And it's awful because you're just close enough to the adult table to hear all the laughter and the joy that's going on in that other room. Okay, As a kid, you don't know that it's really dull at the adult table yet, right? You hadn't figured that out. And I longed for the day when I would be old enough to take my seat at the adult table. Now, I tell you that story because for most of Christian history, the book of James has kind of taken a back seat to the other books of the New Testament. Okay, James kind of gets put at the kids' table. Right, when you think about the New Testament, uh, the Gospels get a lot of attention, and, and rightly so. Okay, those are the stories of Jesus. Hey, they should hold that center place in our faith. Okay, next, Paul gets to be the main character that we care about for the rest of the New Testament. His books are all highly regarded. Uh, Even the writings of, of John get some popularity. Okay, but historically speaking, James is one of the least used books in our churches and in our classes, in our worship services. It's long been something of a neglected book. Quite literally, James is the little brother. Okay, quite famously, Martin Luther called the book of James an epistle of straw, right? In a more lengthy work, Martin Luther wrote this. He says, we should throw the epistle of James out of this school for it doesn't amount to much, okay? Luther really liked Romans. Uh, he felt that James and Paul contradicted each other. So obviously what we need to do is just kick James out of the Bible. It doesn't even belong there. Well, With all due respect to Dr. Luther, uh, he's wrong. God gave us this very short book for a good reason. Uh, James does not, in fact, contradict Paul, which we'll talk about in a few weeks when we get to that particular passage. But I think our faith would be much poorer if we avoided this book, which I think is especially relevant to our culture today. I think one of the things our modern culture struggles with is a disconnect between what we say we believe and how we act. Okay, and James will address that issue head on. We'll talk about that a lot in the coming weeks. Right, but here's the main point of James. If you're only going to take one thing from what I say this morning. If you're only going to write one thing down, this is it. Okay, and that is that faith is practical. Right, if you want to sum up this letter into one sentence, I think it's that. Faith is practical. I think James is a how-to book. All right, so James says, how terrible would it be if we had all of the right head knowledge about Jesus and God and God's plan for the world and we understood all of these big, important ideas, and yet even though we knew all of these things, we lived our lives just as if Jesus never existed. Okay, so what difference does it make to how I live my life outside of worship service that all the stuff that we proclaim here is actually true. What difference does it make that Jesus actually did die and rise again on the third day? What difference does it make that God created the world? What difference does it make that I proclaim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Okay, James insists that faith is practical. All right. Notice verse 1 of this letter. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ... To the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. All right, the reason I started this morning with that video is because the James who wrote this letter is probably none other than the James that Scripture tells us was the little brother of Jesus. Okay, now there are several Jameses mentioned in Scripture, somewhere around six or seven, depending on how you count them. And it's certainly possible that another James could have written this letter, but tradition has always held that it's this James, James the little brother of Jesus, the same James we read about in the book of Acts, is the one who stood up among all the believers, was one of the leaders of that church in Jerusalem who wrote this letter. Okay, Because we read in Acts, and Luke tells us that shortly after the beginning of Christianity, Okay, what happened is that persecution broke out against the church. It was largely the Jewish leadership who could not stand this new version of Judaism, and so they strongly opposed it. Okay, quite quickly, one of the other Jameses was martyred for his faith, and so the living twelve apostles, right, the ones who were still left, scattered from Jerusalem. They took their faith with them wherever they went. And they started spreading the church around. In fact, the Bible even tells us that that persecution was intentional because it was a way to keep the faith from staying in Jerusalem. Instead, the gospel message went to all the ends of the earth. Okay, but James, the brother of Jesus, stayed in Jerusalem. Okay, and since he stayed, he quickly became one of the primary leaders of the church there, working mostly with Jewish Christians. Okay, so it seems likely is that this letter that we call the book of James was written by Jesus' little brother, and that it was sent to several places around the world where Christians found themselves in new places with new people, figuring out what in the world does it mean to be a part of this new movement called Christianity. And James has a lot of practical advice on what is this going to look like for you as you try to live out your faith. Now, why does it matter who wrote the letter? Okay, what difference does it make whether all the stuff I just said is right or not? Okay, all of the advice in this book is really good. It's godly advice, no matter which James wrote it. So what difference does it make? All right, but I want you to notice again the first line of verse 1. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ see, part of the problem that I have with this verse and with a lot of Scripture is that I would do it differently. Okay, there's a lot of Bible stories where I read this story and I think, okay, had I been a character here, I wouldn't have done it that way. I would have done it differently. Okay, for instance, when Stephen is being stoned by the crowd and he asks God to forgive those who are stoning him because they don't know what they're doing, I would have done that differently. Anyone else? Okay. Right, when Jesus has a crowd of thousands of followers, he just fed 5,000 people. Everybody's excited about this whole Jesus thing. They're ready to make him king. They're ready to follow him to the ends of the earth. And Jesus says, oh, by the way, unless you can eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot follow me. And everyone says, okay, Jesus, we were with you up until then. Then you started talking about some crazy stuff, and so now we're all going home. If I had been Jesus with thousands of people behind me, I would have preached a different sermon, right? I would have done it differently. Okay, when Paul and Silas get thrown into prison and they don't know if they're going to live or die, what they choose to do is break out into song. They have a worship service. Now, I love a good worship service as much as the next person, but if I'm sitting in prison, I would have done that differently. Fair enough? All right. Had I been the one writing the book of James, and if I was the brother of Jesus, I would have written my introduction differently. I am pretty sure that if I were James, the brother of Jesus, the child of Mary and Joseph, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, if I was writing a letter, I would lead with that. I guarantee you my business card would say, brother of Jesus. Yes, that Jesus, right? Right? But you notice that when James writes this letter, he doesn't write any of that in his opening line. Instead, what does he say? He says one thing about himself. He says, if you want to know one thing about me that will lead you to read the rest of this letter and take it seriously in your life, what is the one thing you need to know about this James? He says, James, a servant, or really a better translation of that, but one that makes us uncomfortable, is he says, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, what's his great claim to authority? That he's a slave of Jesus. Okay, he gets a chance to tell the entire church one thing about himself, and what he claims is that he's a slave of Jesus. Now, here's my question for us this morning. Number one is, what's your primary identity? When you take moments of self reflection, when you really sit down and look in the mirror, when you think about who you are, what is your primary identity? If you were writing your life's resume, what's the first thing that you would say about yourself? Hey, because here's the thing our culture loves impressive titles and honors. And much of the goal that we have as we live our life is to be accumulating more titles and honors. You know, most companies now don't have just one vice president like they used to. Now most big companies will have about 12 vice presidents. Why? Because when you're at a party somewhere, you don't want to introduce yourself just as an associate somewhere. You want to be able to say that you're a vice president, right? Okay, the janitor at most places now calls himself a sanitation engineer. Why? Why? That sounds a whole lot better. We care a great deal about how we see ourselves. I make Titus call me Dr. Chisholm. Why? Because it's the right thing to do. (laughs) When you spend time in self-reflection, when you take stock of your life, how do you think of yourself? What is your primary identity? Because here's the thing. If your primary identity is as a servant of Jesus, then that becomes the lens through which you will see the rest of your life. Okay, and if your primary identity is, I am a servant of Jesus, okay, then when you go to work, your first question will be, okay, how do I serve Jesus here at my job? If your primary identity is that you are a servant of Jesus, when you're parenting your children, your first priority will be, okay, how do I raise my children to be servants of Jesus? When you decide to relax, your first concern will be, how even in my downtime am I using God's gifts to serve God's kingdom? If my primary identity is that I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, that changes how I address every other area of my life. Are we honestly living the kind of life to where our primary identity is as servants of Jesus Christ? I think if we're not, then we need to evaluate what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Fair enough? All right. notice the next part of verse 1. Because I think the second line in verse 1 is highly significant. And if we're reading very quickly through James, we'll completely skip over it and miss out on what he's saying. Okay, After he says that he's a servant of Jesus, he addresses this to. He says, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Okay, Why does that matter? If you look back at history... You have to go back almost 1,000 years before Jesus to get to the last time we even had 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, here's your, your two-minute history reminder. Uh, but remember back to the history we read about in 2 Kings and 1 Kings. Okay, after the kingdom of David splits into two, uh, you've got two kingdoms, right? You remember the, the nation of Israel splits into two. You get north Israel up in the northern half. and the southern part, you get the, the Judah, Right? Southern Israel becomes the kingdom of Judah. So you've got Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And shortly after that, the kingdom that arises and dominates the entire known world was the kingdom of Assyria. Okay? They built this massive Assyrian empire. And while the Assyrians were building their empire, the nation of Israel, okay, our northern part of the kingdom, allied themselves with the Egyptians in an attempt to stop Assyria. Okay, and that is a really weird thing to read about in history, okay, because that would be about like if we're in a war with Russia, Mexico decides to join in and try to stop one side against the other. Okay, Israel is a very small kingdom. Nobody cares what Israel is doing. Why in the world would they try to ally themselves with one or the other of these? it turns out to be a really bad idea to ally with the Egyptians against the Assyrians. And so the Assyrians come in and conquer all of North Israel. They overthrow the capital city of Samaria in 722 BC, and they immediately proceed to eradicate 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. Again, all of this happens long before we ever think about Jesus. And when the Assyrians come in and conquer people, they like to mix them up. So what they did is they took all of these Israelites from north Israel, and they mixed them up with other people from all over their empire. They sent some of these Jews to all sorts of different corners of their empire, and they brought people from all the other corners of their empire and settled them in Israel. Okay? Eventually, the mixed-together people living in Israel became known as the Samaritans. Right? So, by Jesus' day, we get lots of stories of Jesus encountering Samaritans, and we don't like these people. Okay? Why? Well, because they've got a little bit of Jewish blood, but they're not Jewish. They're not us anymore. So, by the time Jesus finally is born, we have people living in what was Judah, who can claim to be from the tribe of Judah. For instance, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. We have people who can claim to be from the tribe of Benjamin, people like Paul. All right, and we still have Levites, people who are working at the temple. Okay, but no more do we have people who claim to be from tribes like Reuben or Zebulun or some of those other tribes because they don't exist anymore. They haven't existed for a long, long time. So, if James is writing nearly 800 years since there have been 12 tribes, why in the world would he address his letter to the 12 tribes? Why? Okay, Because part of the promise has always been that when the messiah comes what's he going to do he's going to restore the 12 tribes of Israel okay so why does Jesus choose exactly 12 disciples because he's very symbolically restoring the 12 tribes of Israel okay why after Judas betrays Jesus and dies do we immediately have to select a replacement for Judas Okay, because when Peter stands up in Acts 2 and preaches at Pentecost and says the kingdom of God is here, it is vital, it is imperative. We have exactly 12 apostles standing up saying, and the restored kingdom of Israel is here. We need 12 tribes of Israel represented by 12 apostles. Okay, Jesus talks about this. Paul will flesh it out more in his writings. Okay, but what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God is that we are supposed to see ourselves as part of the restored 12 tribes of Israel who are living under the covenant of God and all of those promises that God made to our ancestors a long time ago, they are still in effect for us. Does that all make sense? Okay, So when James addresses his letter to the 12 tribes, he's addressing it to the church. To all of us who are followers of Jesus, who are part of this kingdom that's scattered throughout the entire world. Okay, when we claim to be a part of the kingdom of God, we are not claiming to be part of a kingdom that was established in 33 AD. Okay, we are claiming to be part of a kingdom that God began back when he picked Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to make you some promises now. Okay, we as the church today are part of what God had planned from the beginning. All right, so you're sitting there saying, all right, that's interesting, but so what? All right, here's number two. If you're taking notes, write this down. Is we need to think very seriously about what does it mean for us to be a part of a scattered community? Okay, do we see ourselves in that lens? After we've decided I'm going to be a servant of Jesus, is the second way we see our lives, do we think of ourselves as a scattered community, or do we think of ourselves as a settled people? Okay, because here's several several things that a scattered community does differently than a settled community. And the first is this. That is, a scattered community doesn't get too comfortable. Okay? A scattered community doesn't get too comfortable. You know, not long ago, I was looking for a, a new vehicle for me, and so I test drove several, and my primary concern in finding a new vehicle is I wanted a vehicle that was comfortable, right? So if the seat didn't feel right, if it didn't drive right, if I didn't like the comfort of the vehicle, I wasn't going to buy it. Why? Because I spent a lot of time in my car, right? A couple years ago, we bought a house, moved into a house, right? We had to get a truck to move all of our stuff, a moving truck. Whenever I was looking to get a moving truck, did I test drive a bunch to figure out which one was most comfortable? No. Why? Because I wasn't going to be in it for very long. I'm not real concerned with the comfort of the ride if I'm only going to be in it for a short time. You see where I'm going with this? If we think of ourselves as a scattered community, then we don't worry so much about getting comfortable right here. Why? Because we're only going to be here for a short time. A scattered community doesn't get too comfortable. Alright, next thing. A scattered community recognizes that it has more in common with someone across the world who's a Christian than someone who lives next door who's not. In other words, there's Christians worshiping this morning on the other side of the globe that don't look or talk or sound or have the same kind of values and other things, anything like ours, and yet they're Christians who are living in discipleship to Jesus Christ, and they have more in common with us than the person who might live next door to you who's not a believer. Do we really think about the people who are most like us being Christians around the world, and that's our true family, or do we put most of our priority in forming relationships with people who are exactly like us in every other way? Okay, A scattered community recognizes where our brothers and sisters really are. All right. That leads into the next one, which is a scattered community anchors itself in forming relationships with other community members. Okay? In other words, your biological family may fail you. Okay, Your country may fail you. Your job may fail you. Even individual Christians may fail you, but the kingdom of God as a whole will never fail you. So who gets your primary allegiance? If we think of ourselves as a scattered community, our primary allegiance will always be to that community. Fair enough? All right. And finally, that is, a scattered community doesn't worry about the things that normal people worry about. Okay, and here's what I mean by this. Do I spend more time worrying about things like, you know, where we're going to go on our next family vacation, or what kind of car am I going to drive, or how's my retirement doing, or any of those kinds of things? Or do I spend more time worrying about, hey, there's people living in my neighborhood who don't know Jesus. And what am I doing to help them know the Lord? If we truly think of ourselves as a scattered community, then that second worry becomes primary, and all that other stuff that I tend to get distracted by suddenly takes on a whole lot less importance. A scattered community doesn't worry about things that normal people worry about. Do I spend more time focusing on the externals? Things like my haircut or my clothing? Or the internals? Like cultivating a meaningful, daily, quiet time. What do we worry about? You really want to know where your priorities are? Ask yourself, what am I really worrying about today? All right, we are the kingdom of God. We are the heirs to the covenant. We are the chosen people, the royal priesthood, the children of God Almighty. I think if our primary identity is as a scattered community, as servants of God, then our lives will look a whole lot more like disciples of Jesus than they will like the rest of the world around us. And so we'll look at this as we get deeper into James. What does it look like for us to live lives where our faith actually shows itself in the way we treat everyone around us and the way we live our lives? All right, at this time in our service, we're going to sing a few verses of an invitation song. Uh, During the singing of this song, I will be down front. One of our shepherds will be down front. Uh, This song is a time where we as the church want to be here for you. If we can sit down with you and pray with you or study scripture with you or teach you more about what it means to follow this Jesus, we would love the opportunity to do that. Before we sing that song, however, I'd like to close us with a word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. Let's stand and sing.